Good to see you this beautiful Sunday morning, and I'm sure that uh, most are aware, and hopefully all are participating in our time of fasting and prayer. And as always, God speaks during such times. He always speaks to us. But there are times where we need specifics and details and direction from him. And during this time, he has been faithful to speak. And what we are continuing to hear, what I am continuing to hear, are basically two things. And I was thinking this morning, one of them is best described by a situation that the Israelites were in in Exodus chapter 14. God had called them out of Egypt, gave them specific directions, and in Exodus 14, he told Moses, I want your people to camp between these geographic markers. And you can look them up in Exodus 14 if you like under their Hebrew names. But let me give you what the names mean in English, places like Pihairoth. And these places that are listed in Exodus 14 are translated as the mouth of gorges, the well of bitterness, and the master of gloom. The Lord said, that's the campground for the Israelites as they exited Egypt, and the backdrop is going to be the Red Sea, and the circumstance is going to be the Egyptian army closing in on them. So the Lord said, say the Lord said. The Lord said, Moses, tell my people camp in these places between these geographic markers. And the lesson we learned way back when, when we studied it, uh, studied Exodus 14 was simply this, that God will lead you into difficulty for the glory of getting you out. And listen this morning, we're in a spot here at CCT and looking for a new building. But one of the things we keep getting continually over and over through emails, through shared verses, through many of you and people literally from around the country is this. The Red Sea is about to part and it's going to happen soon. And God is going to bring us into a wonderful place that he has already prepared for us. God is on the move. And if we look around, we may see the well of bitterness, the master of gloom, and the other things if we keep our look and our eyes focused laterally. But if we look up, we are going to see the deliverance and the provision of the Lord. This is the first thing the Lord has been speaking. The second thing is our text this morning. Would you open your Bibles to Acts chapter 20? We'll look at verses 1 through 12 as we wait expectantly for a soon move of the Lord into a place that he has prepared for us. Now, I have to say, I'm entirely cool with the possibility that maybe we're not going to need a new place and he's going to take us all home here in the next nine and a half months. I'm good with that. I hope you are too. Now, last week we found ourselves in the great theater of Ephesus. We found a rather interesting scene where with the home of the temple of the goddess Artemis or Diana, as a backdrop, an angry mob yelled for two hours, great is Diana of the Ephesians. And the reason for this is because of the impact that the church was having on the community through the efforts led by the Apostle Paul. We made the point last week that the sin industry's bottom line was being impacted. And wherever the church is, wherever the church is being faithful and fruitful, that is going to be an end result. That the businesses of the world that make their living off of sin are going to be impacted by the church's positive influence. 
Now, we were told that the people of Ephesus burned their books of incantations and spells, as well as the amulets and crystals that would be found inside of them. And they, in fact, were told that what a person makes with their own hand can't be a god, nor can it be an object of worship. And this is the argument that Demetrius made that stirred up the crowd against Paul and his companions. Now, when we left the church last time, or chapter last time, we found the city clerk had dismissed the crowd, reminding them of the potential consequences coming from Rome itself, because Rome frowned upon such commotions as was being orchestrated because of the anger uh, directed at the church. Now, we were reminded again that while we are to be the best of any nation's citizenry, We are to be the hardest working of any industry, and we are to be the most merciful and kind of all peoples that we're still going to experience what Jesus experienced and told us we would in response to being those kind of people. What did he say our experience is going to be? He said in Matthew 10, 22, and you will be loved by everybody. No, you will be what? Hated by all. Why? For his name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. Now, we really talked about the first half of that verse last week and how the exclusive claims of the head of the church will cause his followers uh, to be hated just as Jesus was. Well, this morning we're going to be talking about enduring to the end. And I do believe that the end of all things, as Peter wrote, is at hand and we need to be looking up because our redemption is nigh. But we aren't just to stand around and look up or sit around and wait. There are things God has for us to do. Amen. Now, we mentioned last time that there are those today who lean toward what's called ecumenism or interfaith or common ground movements. And that is basically what they're promoting is a spirit of unity We need to unify between the commonalities, between religions, and reach our world in that manner, even though our collective beliefs have distinguishing features. Now, those who say that we ought to be involved in that and have a spirit of unity, create a spirit of disunity with anyone who says the Christian message is actually an exclusive message, and there's only one way to heaven, according to the founder and head of the church, and that is Jesus in John 14, 6, when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. That's pretty exclusive, wouldn't you say? And Jesus said, that's how it is. Access to heaven, access to where the Father and his throne is, and I am is exclusively through me. Now, some people today say that turns people away from the Christian faith. That turns them off to the Christian message. And we need to be more inclusive of other religions. And the truth is, we are not called to endeavor to keep the spirit of unity. We are called to endeavor to keep unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Now, Paul wrote this in Ephesians 4, 1 to 6. Where he said, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And here's what that looks like. 
He says there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all y'all. Somebody say amen. Amen. Now, enduring to the end is going to require unity of the Spirit on the shared hope that we have in the one Lord, who calls people to himself to be baptized in his name, to walk in his Spirit by faith in their calling. And while there are differences in our callings, There is one God and Father of all who is above all and works through us all by being in us all. And therefore, there's only one title for our communion Sunday this morning. And it's a phrase we've all said and are familiar with, but we'll redefine it here today. And our title is simply all for one and one for all. Now, anyone who's saved is saved exclusively by the one way to heaven. And he is the way to heaven for all. There is one God who has supplied one Savior, and he has declared that the one way to heaven and the means by which heaven has arrived at and how it became accessible to us is what we're going to end our service with this morning, the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Now, in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-8, Paul reminded us that I delivered to you, first of all, that which I received. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that he was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And that he was seen by Cephas or Peter, then by the twelve. After that he was seen by over 500 brethren at one time, of whom the greater part remained to the presence. Or in other words, 500 people saw the resurrected Lord at one time. Most of them are still alive today, Paul was saying. But some had fallen asleep or died. After that, he was seen by James and by all the apostles. Then last of all, Paul says, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. Now, listen, if the birthplace of Jesus wasn't foretold by Micah the prophet long before Jesus was born, if Jesus being called out of Egypt as the son of God wasn't written in scripture many, many years, even a half a millennia in advance. If his manner of death was not pre-recorded beforehand and the place and situation of his burial spoken well before his death, you could argue that Jesus is not the only way. But since he died, was resurrected, resurrected and rose again, According to the scriptures, his work, name, and claims are valid, and he is the one for all, and all whom he saves are going to be one with him. Now, we're going to see the all for one and one for all spirit demonstrated in our text this morning after the upheaval we examined last week. As Paul now departs from Ephesus, heads for Macedonia, and we'll find two considerations from our text this morning, and I'll remind you again, this is the other thing that the Lord has been speaking and that I and others have been hearing repeatedly concerning CCT and its future, and it really is for the whole of the church around the world. So, would you stand and read with me, please, from Acts chapter 20, verses 1 through 12, and we'll divide our text into two halves as we revisit. Verse uh, Chapter 20, verse 1. 
After the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. Now, when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece and stayed three months. And when the Jews plotted against him as he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. And Sopater of Berea accompanied him to Asia, also Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derbe, and Timothy, and Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia. These men, going ahead, waited for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in, the five, in five days joined them at Troas, where we stayed seven days. Now, on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together, and in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep. He was overcome by sleep, and as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down, fell on him, and embracing him, said, Do not trouble yourselves, for his life is in him. Now when he had come up and had broken bread and eaten and talked a long while, even till daybreak, he departed. And they brought the young man in alive, and they were not a little comforted. And Lord, we thank you for this very timely word. And Lord, we pray, as we often do, that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying, because we know your spirit is speaking this morning, because your spirit is the author of your word, inspired on every page and infallible in its content and context. So Lord, would you speak to us this morning a word from you, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now remember, having had two fruitful years of ministry in Ephesus, Paul decided that after things quieted down from the previous upheaval, if you will, and the theater incident, it was time to move on. And we don't need to look at this and let our minds wander into thinking that Paul was kind of abandoning ship because of hardship. We know better because of Paul's ministry experience and how we're told about the things that he suffered. Now, what we need to remember, though, is that the previous commotion was the result of a revival in the response of the world because many in the church repented of their use of pagan practices. We found that in Acts 19, 18 to 20, where we're told many who had believed, meaning they were previously believers in Christ, they came confessing and telling their deeds. Also, many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So, the word of the Lord did what? Grew mightily and prevailed. I ran across an interesting quote this week from A.W. Tozer, where he said, A whole new generation of Christians have come up believing that it's possible to accept Christ without forsaking the world. And listen, it is a package deal. We become new creations in Christ. The old things pass away. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean we ought to be holding book burnings as the church, but it does mean we ought to be forsaking pagan practices and things we may have embraced before we came to Christ. Now, 
We also noted that when Christians forsake the world, meaning turn from their sin, the impact it has on the sin business is going to cause an uproar about the way. And that's how Christianity was described, the way. It even implied the exclusivity of the Christian faith that we still hold to believe in today. Now, the point is this. Paul could move on because the church was fully engaged in spiritual warfare. The church had matured after the two years that he had been teaching them to the degree that because of the repentance, because of the setting aside of the pagan practices they had incorporated, were told so, or because of the previously mentioned, the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Remember, prevail means to have an impact. So upon his preparation for departure, Paul calls his disciples to himself. He embraces them. Then he heads for Greece and we see a repeated scene throughout the book of Acts takes place again. He preaches, the Jews plot against him. And then as he was about to sail to Syria, he changed his mind and went back through Macedonia, most likely because the plot of the Jews against him was going to happen on the ship to Syria. And thus he changed his plans and decided to visit the churches he he planted on his second missionary journey, specifically those in Thessaloniki, Berea, and Philippi, or Philippi, as we say. Now, he encouraged the churches there with many words. And his traveling companions and the advance team for Troas then are named. And Troas simply means on the plain of Troy. It was a suburb of the very famous city of Troy. Troas, that is. And it was from this list of names that we're going to arrive at our first of two conclusions or considerations for the day. Now, the first thing for us to note is that there are multiple cities and thus multiple cultures that are named amongst the six men who are partnering with Paul in ministry. And that reminds us that our God is the God of all the earth. He is the God over every nation and every city. He is the one true and the living God. And there is one God for all, and these men were all for the one God. The other thing to note is that the ministry team worked in unity for the cause of Christ under the covering of Paul. Now, we're told of Sopater of Berea, and many believe that this is likely a relative of Paul, and it's a variation of the spelling of a man called Sosipater in Romans 16.21, which is a possibility. The other thing to note about Sopater is the hometown that he was from, and we were introduced to it back in Acts 17.10-11, through 11, where we're told, Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night, to Berea, again, threats on their life. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness, searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Now, after Sopater, we're introduced to Aristarchus and Secundus of the city of Thessaloniki. Now, Aristarchus indicates that this man was an aristocrat within his town. He was an important man. Secundus is not actually a name. It's actually a number. It's the Greek word for the number two. 
And in this day, slaves or household slaves didn't even have a name. They were simply numbered. The steward of the household, the one who cared over the master's goods, would be named Primus. He would be number one or called Primus. The one who assisted him would be called Secundus or number two. Next, we're introduced to Gaius of Derby, to whom the third epistle of John the Beloved is addressed. And then we meet the three T's of Asia, Timothy, Tychicus, and uh, Trophimus. And Timothy, obviously, is being uh, known or is known as the spiritual son of Paul. Tychicus means fortunate. Trophimus means nutritious. Or we might say he was known as being well-fed. And we'll just leave that right there. Now, put this all together, and you have men from various cities and cultures, and potentially various languages, even though the dominant language of the day and the diplomatic language of the day was Greek. You have a man who came from a city where they were more fair-minded than people of other cities. You have an aristocrat and a slave from the same city. You have two men who are very close to two of the pillars of the church, John the Beloved and the Apostle Paul himself. And you have two men whose very names describe them as fortunate and well-fed. Now, this is a picture of the church. People from diverse backgrounds, cultural experiences, who are all for one God, and there is one God for them all. Now, here's our point, and here's the other thing that the Lord has been speaking to this church and all of us through this time of prayer and fasting, and it's just this. Are you ready this morning? Listen, God can and will use anyone who wants to be. God can and will use anyone who wants to be. Now listen, the unity of the Spirit includes a unity of calling and equipping. Now again, our callings will be manifested in different ways from person to person, even as we see in our text. Some are traveling with Paul, some are on the advance team to go to Troas, like we uh, see with part of the group. Some are just commissioned by God to write down what is happening, like we see with Dr. Luke. But we are all called to serve the Lord, which implies and requires being used by him. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. Now, Paul also reminds us in 1 Corinthians 12, 4 to 6, that there are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. There are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. Now, listen this morning. Tune in. Don't miss this. If you get anything, get this this morning. To say or ponder in our thoughts that God can't use me doesn't say something about you. It says something about what you think of him. Because God is all powerful. You're not an exception. You're not excluded from his usability. And it doesn't matter what our capabilities are. I have shared many times in the past about my biggest fear. And I don't know that they do this anymore. It's probably too intimidating. So the schools stop doing it. But my biggest fear coming up in elementary and what they now call middle school, we called it junior high, was an oral book report. 
If I had to give an oral book report, I couldn't sleep the night before. It was the most horrific experience of my entire young life to stand in front of the class and give a report on a book that I had read. So what did God do? He gave me a job giving oral book reports twice a week (laughs) for now over a quarter of a century. So, listen, God can use us. And he's going to use anybody who wants to be used. And listen, we can't have such thoughts in our minds that, you know, I don't know what God can do through me. Listen, it's not about you. It's about him. He can do anything and you can do all things through him. And listen, he's not looking for a specific kind of person. Case in point, those listed, you've got an aristocrat and a secondary slave listed in our text. And yet they're both serving God shoulder to shoulder, arm in arm. And listen, God isn't looking for a specific kind of person. He's looking for someone who wants him to use them. That's all he's looking for. And that's why Isaiah would say to the Lord, here am I. Send me to the Lord's inquiry of who will go for us? Whom shall we send? Isaiah said, well, I'm here. You can use me. You can send me. And the same is true for you here this morning. Somebody say. Now, Galatians tells us in 326 to 29, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. There goes the list of excuses. For you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ and you are Abraham's seed and what? Heirs, partakers, according to his promise. Listen, all who are for the one God, the one God is for them all. And listen, I have to say this morning, I am greatly looking forward to heaven. Aren't you? What a time that's going to be when we arrive finally in the presence of the Lord and forever are with him. Now, I'm thankful that it is the future home of all who believe in the one who is for them all. I also have something that weighs heavily on my heart constantly and continually. And that is this. When we arrive together in heaven through the group plan... My concern and my thoughts are consumed with wasted time. Because I believe that every single person, when they arrive in heaven, will share the same regret. And some will have it more than others. And that is that I didn't do more for him than I could have in life. Now, I want to do all in the here and now to lessen those regrets. And it is possible, listen close, it is possible and maybe even likely that when we see him and stand before the bema seat of Christ, that having been judged for our works, that tears will stream down all of our faces in the form of tears of regrets. And it is then that he will wipe away the tears because the former things will no longer be. Now... Listen, God can use anyone who wants to be. 
And that doesn't mean that there aren't common sense decisions within our serving, much like we see here with Paul about going to Syria. And it doesn't mean that there aren't sacrifices on our part to be made that we must accept that are the very description of Paul's ministry life. But we need to note that there were others like Paul who made the same sacrificial decision from every walk of life, from aristocrat to slave and everybody in between. They all wanted God to use them. And that is what God has been speaking during this time of fasting and prayer. Listen, if you want to be used by God, you can be. And we'll find out more about this in a moment. But now is the time for all to be for the one God who is for all who love and serve and obey him. Now, look at 7 to 12 once again. We're told on the first day of the week, which is what day? Sunday, like we're meeting right now. When the disciples came together to break bread, which we'll do in a bit, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. That isn't a forewarning, by the way. Now, there were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together, and in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep. He was overcome by sleep, and as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down, fell on him, embracing him, said, Do not trouble yourselves, for his life is in him. Now, when he had come up and had broken bread and eaten and talked a long while, even until daybreak, he departed, and they brought the young man in, how? Alive, and they were not a little comforted. That's just a negative way of saying they were greatly comforted. Now, listen, I thoroughly enjoyed the stories from almost every commentator that I read this week about things seen from the pulpit when people fall asleep in church. (laughs) Various pastors talked of the time that someone was awakened by their own snort. Others told stories of those who bonked their head on the pew in front of them because they dozed off. I remember a time as a young man, you know, the church I was involved in was very musical and it seemed like they had a hundred different uh, groups of trios and quartets and choirs. And I was singing in a quartet at church and a guy in the congregation made the most hysterical face I think I've ever seen in my whole life of somebody trying to stifle a yawn. He was trying to stay awake during our song. Well, I lost it. I couldn't sing anymore. I had to turn my back to the congregation to keep from laughing and gain my composure once again. Now get this, after the service, people came up to me and said, I was really blessed by how you were moved by that song. But listen, our text this morning isn't about falling asleep in church. Somebody say, thank you, Jesus. (laughs) Now, the church in Troas met on the first day of the week, which the church has always met on the same day that the Lord resurrected. And the lamps in the room indicate this was an evening service, very likely after the end of a long and hard day's work. Paul likely spoke for as long as six hours from 6 p.m. till midnight as he was leaving the next day. And the weariness of the day, the smell of the olive oil uh, lamp burning, lamps burning, the heat from them, likely got the best of young Eutychus. And he conked out, fell out the window three stories, and the fall killed him. Paul then does 
what Elijah did with the widow and of Zarephath's son, and Elisha did with the Shunanite, uh, Shumanite woman's son, and laid on the boy. Now, listen, we see this practice stated for us in 1 Kings 17, 17 to 24, that we're told after these things that the son of the woman who owned the house became sick, and there was some oil and flour that was supernaturally uh, multiplied to provide for this household, including Elijah. And his sickness was so serious that there was no breath left in him. So the woman said to Elijah, what am I to do with you, O man of God? Have you come to bring my sin to remembrance and to kill my son? And he said to her, give me your son. So he took him out of her arms and carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his own bed. Then he cried out to the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, have you also brought tragedy on the woman with whom I lodged by killing her son? And he stretched himself out on the child three times and cried out to the Lord, O Lord, my God, I pray, let this child's soul come back to him, telling us he was obviously dead. Then the Lord heard the voice of Elijah and the soul of the child came back to him and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. Then the woman said to Elijah, now by this I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is the what? Is the truth. This would fall under the confirming signs and wonders we see mentioned in the New Testament. And Elijah had the same experience. If you'd like to read that uh, recounting, it's in Second Kings 4. But the fact is, Paul does what the prophets modeled in that he lays on Eutychus, and Eutychus was dead, and life returned to him, and then they broke bread and talked. I, I want to highlight for you how casually this narrative flows. It's just like, yeah, this kid fell out the window. He fell asleep during a six-hour message, fell three stories. He was killed. Paul laid on him, and then he was uh, resurrected, so we ate. (laughs) That's as casual as you can get as far as a miraculous record goes, I believe. And then Paul spoke until dawn when he was then ready to leave. And I have no doubt that within the subjects discussed, the mercy and the power of God manifested in this miracle was a topic that caused great comfort for them all. Now, here's the second thing that goes with our first point I wanted you to take note of this morning before we come to the table. Listen this morning. We've said this in other ways. We're saying it uh, packaged in this manner this morning. Every Christian, say every Christian, Every Christian has exclusive access to divine power. Every Christian has exclusive access to divine power. Now, while God can use not only anyone, he can use anything. Even as he at one point spoke through a donkey, he used unbelieving men like Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to uh, deliver or uh, cause the Babylonian captivity to come to an end and send the Jews back home. Listen, there is an exclusive access to divine power upon request that is available to Christians only. And that divine power is going to manifest itself in different ways in our lives. Maybe some God will move to have flow through them as a conduit, the power to raise the dead. Maybe someone will have the power to have faith in the midst of the lion's den. Maybe somebody else is going to have power manifested in them to walk through the fiery furnace and not be burned or the flame scorch them or even the smell of smoke be upon them. 
It will manifest itself in different ways, but it's accessible to us all. And in 2 Peter 1, 1 to 4, Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have, who have obtained what? Like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord as his divine what? Power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature. Jesus talked about greater things would his apostles, disciples, and uh, those throughout the ages do than he did, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Listen, if you want to be used, divine power is accessible to you. It is available to you. And it is for the purpose of bringing God glory as we lead others to him. And listen, the table we're about to come to expresses for us God's willingness and desire not to just reconcile man to himself, but to reconcile man to himself to restore his usability and access to divine power. And as we recognize that among those that he wants to use is every type of person and personality from every walk of life and ethnic background. So this morning, I want to challenge you to come to this table today, this time of communion with a heart and mind that says, I am all for the one who gave all for me. You're not exempt from his service. You are not the exception to obtaining his empowering. You have obtained a like precious faith through Jesus Christ as his divine power has given you and me all things pertaining to life and godliness. Now, what you do with what he's given you is up to you. You can come to the table today and say, and I pray you do, in light of your broken body and shed blood for me, I give you my flawed, weak, fearful, and doubting self to be used for your namesake and glory until you come and take us all home. I pray that that is your Koinonia, the word communion is the Greek word koinonia, your fellowship with him that is established maybe for the first time or maybe even reestablished this morning. Is he worthy of our service? Listen, we recognize he's worthy of praise. We recognize that he is worthy of worship. We need to recognize that he is worthy of service. And let me just say this. Coming to church isn't serving God. Coming to church is obedience. We serve God by doing things for his namesake and glory and even serving his church, even as we see this group serving through uh, God's power in the ministry that had a covering of the Apostle Paul. So let's truly come to this table this morning and say, I'm all in. I'm all for the one who saves all who believe. I'm fully committed body, soul, mind, spirit, time, 
resources, whatever it may be, let's go all in this morning for the King of kings and Lord of lords who purchased us with the blood of his own son, that he might redeem for himself people from every tribe, tongue, and nation throughout the world. He is worthy of our service to him. Amen? So would you bow your heads this morning as the elders and leaders are coming forward as we enter into this time. And Lord, we are so grateful that the one who is for us all gave all that we might have reestablished koinonia, reestablished fellowship with you to reconcile us, to buy us with a price that was greater than any human could pay. The price of an innocent victim pictured by literally millennia of Passover lambs, an innocent victim shedding blood for the sake of others and because of their sin. Help us this morning, God, to come with a recognition that you gave all. And there's only one who is qualified to give it, even as we remember in Revelation 4 and 5. Heaven, earth, those under the earth, and all of the universe was scanned for one worthy to open the scroll. And there was only one found worthy, and it was a lamb who was slain. So help us, Lord, not become so familiar that the wonder of the cross and your shed blood time in the tomb, resurrection and ascension just becomes commonplace in our thinking. But may it, Lord, stir up a hunger for communion with you, a hunger, Lord, for doing all that you have called us and equipped us to do. And we thank you, as Jesus told the eleven, that he would not leave them as orphans, but that he would send them a helper who was the same as he, that they might not flounder in life, but continue in the things that he had called and equipped them to do. Help us to understand that and embrace that this morning as we recognize what made all these things possible is your broken body and your shed blood. We thank you for our time now, and we enter it in with a spirit not just of reverence, but hearts filled with thanksgiving that you loved us enough to demonstrate your love that while we were yet sinners, you died for we, the ungodly. Help us, Lord, to leave this place with a zeal for your house and a desire to serve. We thank you, Lord, for our time now. In Jesus' name, and I'd ask that you remain in an attitude of worship as the elements are passed out. Please hold them, and we'll partake of them together.